welcome to We Flew Off the Page. I'm Muhammad Seven, and I'm here to do my very favorite thing in the world. Talk to great songwriters about how they do what they do. Each episode, we'll dive into the little details of two of my guests' songs, which I'll play for you. The songwriter has chosen one of their songs, and I have agonized over and selected the other from their catalog of incredible music. This week's episode is brought to you by money. As I once wrote in a song, you got a thousand ways to take my money, but there's only one way to make it. They say money makes the world go round, but to whoever they are, I say, joke's on you. Money is the sponsor of this episode, an episode for which I will not make a single cent. How is this possible, you ask? It's what I call blue-collar math. So many things in this world don't make any sense, and money just be the biggest conundrum of them all. Did any of this make sense to you? If it did, and you'd like to be my financial advisor, well, hit me up. I'm easy to find. And thank you, Money, for not supporting today's show. Without you, I get to do whatever the heck I want on this podcast. At least until doing it for free becomes untenable. And here's a transition for you. Uh, You know who does support this show uh, and all of my endeavors financially? It's my patrons on Patreon.com. If you'd like to support the show, there are a few great ways to do that. You can become a patron and get more personal access to all of my work. That's at patreon.com slash Muhammad7. Links in the show notes. Uh, This is me warmly inviting you to more officially become part of my fan base and community. My patrons are my label. You can also review the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Regardless of how you listen to the podcast, this is a way to help more and more music and songwriting lovers find We Flew Off the Page. And lastly, you could share the show with a friend and win my undying gratitude. Who doesn't want that? My guest today is Stefan Said. Stefan is an internationally acclaimed musician, writer, and activist who has been called This Generation's Woody Guthrie by Billboard magazine and has been compared to Bob Dylan, John Lennon, and Bob Marley in publications like the New York Times, Billboard, BBC, and NPR. An Iraqi-American with immediate family in Baghdad and Mosul, and a diverse heritage that combines Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. He's a prominent voice for interfaith dialogue, peace, and global justice. According to the New York Times, his song, The Bell, was the first major song against the war in Iraq and was hailed as the anti-war anthem of his generation. Stefan pioneered the use of the internet to distribute MP3s and music videos for social causes on a mass scale, and his essays on music and global affairs have appeared in dozens of publications, most recently an article in Variety about the successes and failures of Oliver Anthony's Rich Men North of Richmond. Stefan Said is also the co-founder and host of Borderless, a docu-series and global movement about the people at the front lines of change, where he travels the world, meeting people through music, and discovering their stories of courage and creativity. Stefan Said, welcome to We Flew Off the Page. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. So when you appeared on the folk scene on the Lower East Side in the early 90s, a whole list of artistic luminaries really fell in love with what you were doing. This includes Pete Seeger, Allen Ginsberg, Leonard Cohen, Rufus Wainwright. Um, this is obviously very unusual for a young folk, folk singer. Um, I'm curious, what is it about your particular spark, do you think, that was so infectious and inspiring at that early time? And how much of it was you know, what, what you were writing and performing versus how much of it was people being drawn to Stefan Said the man? 
Wow. <laughs> I've never been asked a question like that. So, um, kudos. <laughs> the, um, the, uh, you know, I, um, I really don't know. I mean, I guess the first thoughts, best thoughts are just that, um, maybe it wasn't anything and it's, you know, it's just determination, you know, when you're young and you have all that energy, it's just so much energy. I definitely had a surplus of, uh, of, um, of need, the feeling of, you know, as the, the, uh, the first Iraq war had just happened. Yeah. Um, and my family was bombed in that at the same time that the Oklahoma city bombing had just happened and the first attempt on the world trade center. So the clear relationship between, um, on the one hand and, and also Rodney King, right. They had all just happened. So the clear relationship between climate change, fossil fuels, war, um, racism and, uh, and, and disgruntlement and divisiveness here in, in our own country at a moment at which it was clear that the world was already falling apart exactly as it is today. To me, and I think maybe because it was my, fam my, my own family mm -hmm. involvement and victimhood or if you were being beneath the bombs that sure. made all of this clear to me, I think... At least I remember, you know, like Billy Bragg telling me even in the early 2000s, he was like, dude, you know, you're feeling this way before I was even because of who you are. And I, I you know, he was old enough and wise enough to 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 say, you know, to see that when I hadn't even really seen it myself. And I, so I think maybe in some part that that's where my intensity like I came here desperate to try to change the world. Mm -hmm. So I think I had that, you know, and that fueled me. Um, so more than anything, maybe that was it. I mean, musically, I was, I was, I, I had become, I know, and a lot of people, whether it was Ginsburg or, um, people like that, or Patti Smith, or, um, it, I, I was a trove of, of world folk musics and Americana, mm -hmm. American folk music. I had imbibed it and been around it. You grew up on a, you know, on a fiddle player. Yeah, and, and so I'd, I'd, I'd learned all these songs that most people in, let's say, the folk revival had learned from records. I'd learned them in trailers in southern West Virginia, word of mouth from somebody who couldn't write their own name right. um, still. So I had all that, that, that colloquial knowledge of storytelling, which isn't on the recordings, how they held their bodies, how the, the sense of humor, the self-effacing demeanor, the all of that stuff that actually is intrinsic and necessary to bridging divides and building community in ways that I think in our commercial culture we've lost. So I think that that was sort of, I know like with Patty um, and definitely with Alan, who was like a huge, you know, from Harry Smith recordings and Dylan and all of that, a, a big fan of 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 the legacy of, of folk music and where it had come from. Of course, it wasn't called folk music right. um, to them. It was, you know, it was Charlie Patton. It was... It was Washington Phillips. It was whatever, right? Wow. Anyway. That, so, this is so interesting. So on the one hand, it kind of in your DNA, kind of on a cellular level, you had um, lived this tradition of American music that um, is also about 
I mean, it was all, is also about social movements, ultimately, or, or about at least about reaching people in a natural way. Maybe it's not even about social movements. It's just about the natural way that our human communities seek to communicate with each other about important things. And, yeah. and that's something that you, you just absorb through osmosis from the nature of your life, it sounds like. Yeah, well, I was definitely curious about it. I was... Um... And it was intentional. I mean, I was def. I had been lucky to be raised in a family that was multilingual and multi-ethnic and right. and multi and multi-musical. Like we had music from all over the world. Right. Um, and um, so, uh, yeah. Um, so I guess all of those things combined. But there was a point at which, already in in my early teens, I had. Um, I, I I was I had known that I was I was already grasping grappling to somehow combine uh, kind of the social change activism of of Martin Luther King or uh, and 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 songwriting poetry and songwriting and activism in one and politics I didn't know if I was going to go into international law or I was just mm. going to be a musician mm-hmm. and ultimately it was like okay they gradually I was I realized oh I could do all of these in one mm-hmm. and. And um, and then that in turn, just specifically, talk, you know, at some point after touring with with punk bands and stuff like that, I, I gave up commercial culture and went and migrant farm worked, and that's when I began to to imbibe mnemonic or oral tradition, mm. and 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 I realized that I felt that the divide in our world, the growing divide, was could only be healed by some knowledge of this lost art form of, of oral tradition. Yeah. Um, anyway, just to sort of better explain more deeply um, on your, on your comment. This is a, it's a good explanation. So I'll just sort of summarize what I'm, what I gather from, from what you've said and what we've talked about here. I, I hear three things that sort of answers my question. Uh, you know, it's like, I, I'm often trying to figure out about people who are enigmatic, you know, and so often, songwriters are enigmatic there's just sort of a, a something about them that draws you to you know to great songs and to great songwriters and and uh and sort of what is that thing because so often as the as the as the as the as the friend or the or as the listener or whatever like you don't exactly know it's just sort of something and so it's interesting to hear about you know how you're talking about this i hear these three things one of them is you know you're just such a real person you have had this life experience in some ways unusual. I think it seems like what's unusual about it, you know, sort of lots of people um, grew up in Appalachia, as did you, and, you know, had connections to, 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 to American music in the way that you did. But you had that plus having, um, you know, your Iraqi heritage and your connection to the Middle East in such a real and genuine way, plus your connection to your mother's European heritage. Remind me where she's from. She's from Austria, from That's Vienna. That's right. Right. So anyway, just such a breadth of of connection to the world. And that's a kind of unusual. And um, th- there's just such a, a, a glow, I think, coming from you of of being a citizen of the world, which I think to me is, is interesting as a person. I mean, it's also something that I, I have in my mixed Middle Eastern and, and U.S. heritage. Uh, in Canadian heritage as well. But there's something about that that, you know, it's like all the borders are so artificial. There's something about uh, somebody who, 
embodies and understands and kind of just gives gives something off about um, gives off a glow about um, you know about sort of globality um, that is I think compelling and feels real and feels true and feels hopeful. So anyway, see that about you. And then there's then there's the part which we haven't quite talked well, about. Likewise, uh, thank you. Like- <laughs> yeah, but then there's the part about how. Like you don't give a shit. You're you, you've got a I don't give a shitness about you. Like I'm gonna say the thing, and that was a moment in U.S. history. You know that was the big. If you're not with us, I mean, there's been a thousand. If you're not with us, you're against us moments. But that was a big. If you're not with us, you're against us moment that really uh, t- sort of shaped the country in that period. And you weren't having it. You were gonna say the things, you know, in spite of, you know, and you weren't a white activist saying these things, you were an Arab American at a time when the country's making war on an Arab country. So, you know, there's something huge about that uh, to me. Um, And then the third thing just being, and you're a talented artist and a great songwriter. So you put those three things together. And um, anyway, I, 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 I knew coming into this conversation and I knew having, you know, followed your work for so long, um, that I responded uh, sort of to, to who you are and to what you do in this particular way. And I was curious about the early roots of it. And, and so anyway, great to hear you talk about it. Does that yeah. all sound right to you, what I've said? Have I, have I miss? Yeah, I'm, I, I just, it's you? interesting because no, it's, it's, I think it's good. I'm a little bit um, bashful, I guess, if, if you will, <laughs> but I, nobody's ever quite asked me. And I, you know, I'll tell you as just sort of a hilarious anecdote though. Like I, I reconnected with an old friend that I knew from that time, actually through our kids who are good friends. Um, and is a musician, uh, Dean Markey that I that played frequently at Chennai and all that kind of stuff when I had first come and I played there um, when I first came in the mid nineties to the city, uh, <laughs> and when we first met and reconnected, he is so hilarious. I still laugh thinking about, it. but he was like, "Dude, I remember when I first met you, man. I was almost like afraid of you, or maybe I'm paraphrasing, but just that, like his memory of it was just that I was so intense. I was so <laughs> possessed by like what I wanted to do and how I had to do it that, yeah. that I I never." Of course, when you're that and you're young and you're like post-adolescent, basically, almost or whatever. I was in my 20s, but the, I I'm, I think I've mellowed a bit since then. You know, at that point in time, I, and I never realized just what a maelstrom I must have been of energy, of um, combination of, you know, desperation and ego and mm-hmm. all the things that make us as artists want to feel that we need to be, we need to express ourselves um, whether we're going to be heard at all is not even in the picture as, as much as the, the existential need to just let it out or whatever. Yeah. Anyway, pretty funny. And I was like, are you serious? Was I that horrible? He <laughs> <laughs> was like, no, 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 it wasn't. Not that it was bad. It just that, like, you're not at all. Just that, you know, that, yeah, you know, you were intense, man. You were like all about your craft, you know, you were like, yeah. practicing all the time writing de- you know songs rapping multi-instruments uh you know yep yeah i guess i guess at that time it would have been yeah anyway pretty funny <laughs> we take a risk um every time we write a song we risk failure we risk people not liking it um it's not rooted in reality but i think most of us feel like our value as a person is tied to the success or failure of each and every song 
So it's a lot of pressure. Um, but for those of us who use the, say, the stage as a pulpit of sorts, for those of us who use our music to reach for people's minds, to share information, to take a position on issues of oppression and human liberation, we take an extra set of risks. And, you know, when a songwriter does this, there can certainly be consequences. Pete Seeger, again, an early champion of yours, was famously blacklisted and indicted for contempt of Congress um, for his affiliation with the Communist Party during the MacArthur era. Now, present day, I watched the great songwriter Carsey Blanton, as I imagine you do, make bold statement after bold statement and then get inundated with attacks, uh, most of them from men yeah. um, with an mm -hmm. overtly vicious and misogynist bent in her case. Um, for an artist of color, you also get hit with the racism. And for an immigrant artist of color, you know, including first generation immigrants like you and I, uh, you get all the classic colonial colonialist condemnations, you know, go back to where you came from, of course, is the greatest hit of that album. Um, anyhow, you've been outspoken and radical in your work from the jump. Um, and after what can only be described as, you know, your meteoric rise, the music industry came after you and decided that a radical political Arab truth teller was too much of a threat to their bottom line. Um, I'm sure that was an awful experience as a person, and you're welcome to say anything about this that you want. But I have a specific question as it relates to your songwriting. I'm curious where your inspiration came from before all of that happened, before you got blacklisted. And, um, you know, like when you wrote a song, what wells were you drawing from? And then I'm curious what it's been like since that time and if your process or your muse you know, has changed. Hmm. Yeah. Um, kind of a lot of questions in there, I guess. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so wondering where, where, where to start or to jump off from. I mean, I think uh, it's interesting to, you know, to hear the word blacklisted and you know, there's maybe no other word for that. Um, of course, if you were to say that today, maybe canceled is, is today's, like literally the last couple years since Me Too is the word maybe some people would use, but then that's also a ticket to success, mm -hmm. an alternative success, because, oh, now it's virable to all the people that are like, oh, they've been canceled, oh, how brave, because mm -hmm. the internet announced for that. Mm -hmm. um, but um, But before the internet i would say um like when i came out and it was just at the, just before it uh there there was there was no internet you were still the only way you were gonna get out in that in the 90s when i came up the 1996 telecommunication act i mean was the nail in the coffin and that was the end of the chance of any real natural artist rising up breaking from building who was going to be outspoken and against the status quo of you know, it used to be, okay, well, if you were great, maybe there was a scene, you could build something. But when that, the monopoly of the radio stations and, you know, Clear Channel and All Live Nation that paved the way for all of that became, um, the there was still another 10 years from then to 2006, seven, when streaming and the end of the major labels and the idea that, oh, you could just... and. Facebook, YouTube, still even later than that. Mm -hmm. When, so you still had the only way you were going to get your word out there, for the most part, was you know, you had to deal with the system, and and somehow be you know, get signed to a label or you know, yeah, 
or or be of such a you know like Ani DeFranco amazingly but you know of course you know marketed and built to a very specific audience and had to in order to do that but if you were going to yeah. want um so that that's interesting because in, in that period i think they turned blacklisted um nobody would admit that everybody's like no come on this is a free country oh that doesn't happen in america you know mm-hmm. but the reality is it and now people do know it happens when you see you know announcers on uh, on CNN or MSNBC basically being pulled off the air if they say anything that's calling for a ceasefire on women and children. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, um, and at the same time that people would see what happened to the Dixie Chicks who were not very outspoken and right. just made an off-the-cuff, off-the-cuff comment at a concert in, I think, England. Yep, well, that's uh, right, at, London. You know, you know, when the be- the bell had already come out and it was already in the New York Times and it was by an Iraqi American artist, outspoken anti-war song. Right. I mean, imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Couldn't get, you know, couldn't get a shit. But I, I think a lot. It's interesting. A lot of people are just beginning to realize, like, oh, my God, blacklisting in America does occur. The silencing of a generation actually that wants change has been occurring it didn't just start now during this Israel-Palestine, which is when we're talking right now, for anybody that listens to this in the future yep. um, moment. Um, it actually has been happening even before 9-11. Right. It's been happening, um, you know, and that's, I mean, Edward Said wrote all about Orientalism. It's known, It wasn't news. This had been going on for a long time, the vilification of an entire region. Right. Um, or, for example, in the case of, like, Africa, oh, there's no oil in most of that, so you don't even hear from them. Right. They're just not even in the news. Right. Unless unless Yemeni pirates take over a ship. And here's Right. Here's another wrinkle. So Saeed, uh, in his book, Orientalism, also lays out uh, what later has been written about as the new Orientalist narrative. So basically it's like the silencing of in the case of us as, you know, West Asians, as Middle Easterners, the silencing of our voices, and then it gets replaced by these, uh, the new Orientalist narrative is the, have you heard about this? The new, uh, yeah. A book called Jasmine and Stars by, I'm forgetting the name of the Iranian woman who, who wrote it, but anyway, it's basically, it, it takes on um, reading Lolita, Lolita in Tehran, that book, and right. the book The Kite Runner, right? And these numbers right. of books, so it's like, it, what Said is talking about for the most part is where, white were Europeans where um, colonialists came in and wrote this new narrative about us and then have, and then the Western word decided writ large that this is the truth about our people that, you know, that we live uh, 2000 years ago constantly, that nothing ever updates in our lives or our culture or our minds or our hearts uh, that, that were, you know, barbarians basically. And, and that goes on in the new Orientalist narrative, the white folks have figured out how to back, um, us, how to back Middle Eastern voices and artists and writers to c- continue telling their narrative through a, a, a sort of thinly disguised, um, you know, set of, of, of stories and works um, that, that sort of make, make it seem like their narrative is now authentic in a new way. In other words, you know, basically what right. this, this woman yeah. in reading Lolita in, in, in Jasmine and Stars is saying, she's saying that, you know, in the book reading Lolita in Tehran, that this is still the way the West wants to see the Middle East. We've just gotten Middle Easterners to tell that story. So anyway, 
I, I guess I just wanted to interject just yeah, to, a bit of diversion, but yeah, no, it's totally, it's totally true. But more to the point is the fact that then the thing that's not discussed so much, and it's more than just Orientalism and it's not, it's not way bigger than just Middle East. It's, it's the whole world. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, more um, is that the, it's not just, okay, the, let's say a certain identity or perspectives that can't come from a certain region. Mm-hmm. Um, what you're talking about, I think, obviously, and I, of course I dealt with this. I mean, it's like, all right, wow, okay, here's the next Dylan. Um, and he's, a, you know, a, a, this prodigy of American folk. But, but of course, if that's what he's going to be, he can't have an Arabic name. Mm-hmm. Right. Because the Arab has to be the guy, I mean, you know, like my friend, an amazing, you know, Palestinian American comedian Mo Amr was this freaking great Netflix show. Yep. But it's still all about Arab American identity and right. that's okay because that's still inherently reinforcing the idea that they're Arabs, they're not actually they can't be just as Yes. American right. as anybody else. They are Arab Americans. Right. Um, and then that's still reinforcing the, the of otherness. Right. Um, but more insidious than that, I think, and more dangerous just for the world and something that, you know, I, I work to overcome with borderless and just my life's work. And I, um, is, is the fact that these pe- people, people who, whose voices we need to hear the most, who have grown up in the frontline situations around the world, whether it's Honduras, whether it's in, here in the United States of America, in Southern West Virginia, where the poverty and the fentanyl usage and all that stuff is like the, all combined in the, in the most disastrous um, reality, or people from the Middle East, or, or Ukraine, or it doesn't make any difference where, mm-hmm. um, is, the, is, is the enabling of of their perspectives without without any of this identity stuff mm. is the is uh and, and the failure of target marketing of the idea that okay it's hip-hop it's it's punk it's folk which kind of genre is it the way that these commercializations which are very in a, in a way kind of very colonial similar to colonialism in the way that they segment segregate separate us when none of us is purely any of these, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. none of we're actually also if 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 instead of if our goal in the life and in the world, particularly at this point in t- of t- time of of human crisis, um, which is where we are, we're in a period of existential crisis for the entire human race. We yeah. ha- we anybody knows that the way that we are living, our global socioeconomic system is not sustainable as it is. But people don't know what to do or how to stop it or how to change it because it's everything. Right. It is everything. It's not just the military complex. It's the music on the radio. It's 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 on Instagram and X and Twitter, whatever. It's it's in everything. Right. Um, But if 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 our aim is not to sell stuff to be financially successful, but our aim is actually to unite the world to try to fix what's facing us. Yeah. Then our algorithm has to be about enabling those voices, and those voices are don't fit into any of those target market boxes. Right. Right. 
they're they're actually their voices are are intentionally transcend those because they have to in order to succeed at their goal of bringing people together against those and across those divides. So it means that every bit of our even cultural dissemination, our, uh, our, all of these things um, have to be looked at. And, and if, and, and the system is, has been basically maybe not even intentionally, but it's just naturally omitting and, those perspectives, perspectives that don't fit into this binary, okay, it's Palestinians versus Israelis. Well, guess what? <laughs> the real people that lived on that land are both of those people. That's and they're right. All the same. They're actually the same families and they both predate and they were all there before Judaism or any monotheism was even invented. So, you know, let, let's get real. And, um, and, Anyway, right. I could go on and on, but um, but uh, there was thing. more to your more. That was more of an answer to one aspect of what you you wrote. Yes, uh, what you raised, but I didn't get to the to the I guess to the songwriting part of it. If yeah. you want to just no, I do. I, I, I will ask you about that. I I, I just want to add one one thing that w- what you were just talking about about um, the way that um, you know basically that that the the forces of globalism and capitalism uh, keep us from being able to communicate the important things, you know, because they're not profitable. Um, I guess one one of the ways I I might say what you were talking about reminds me of, um, I saw Chomsky speak once at MIT in Boston, and he talked about the difference between living in a totalitarian, you know, a, a country run by a totalitarian regime and living, you know, here in the United States, he said, in a totalitarian regime, um, the party that that you know at home in your family, you can say what you think, you can speak your mind, um, but out in public, you got to toe the party line. Otherwise, they come for you. Otherwise, you know, the the agents right. come for you. In the here in the United States, the party line, uh, the it, it, it's like the air we breathe. There's there there is. It's like what do you even talk about? Is almost the situation that we end up in. How do you even acknowledge that there is an issue? We've, as a, as a nation, so um, created a culture that almost you're crazy if you want to talk about um, division or oppression or any real problem. So anyway, I thought it was interesting. Um, you know, it, it, yeah, that is interesting. I mean, the air, I'll, I'll just, it, it, and you can maybe edit this out or whatever, whatever you want to do, but... My brother, um, Rob, was in the military and, uh, and, you know, before the wall came down in Germany. And when he was there, uh, uh, U.S. Army, um, the, uh, I, I'll never forget when I was visiting him. And I guess we went, you know, uh, through Checkpoint Charlie into the eastern side one night. And when we were going, uh, he told me, and it's always stuck with me. And this is, you know, 1989. I mean, I was really young. He was there doing his tour, um, his active duty tour. And, um, and he said to me that he'd realized being there that, um, that state, state media control and information control can never be as efficient or thorough as the individualized uh, censorship, the individualized 
uh, that you get in a capitalist society. Right. Because what that what is ha- he said in retrospect in Amer- because what that does is it makes every single person is actually self-censoring, is changing, is modifying, trying to fit into whatever is going to sell. And if what's the problem is that's going on is this whole idea of selling and how we're profiting and this is continuing this in an inherently uh, inegalitarian kind of view of the world system, which is what we're existentially facing right now, um, then it's automatically excluding that. And you've created, so I'll never forget him telling me that, that he had realized that that the American uh, media and American information is far more efficient at silencing and censoring than, than a state government like Russia could right. ever be. Because think how much money it would take if you were literally going to pay to try to find and silence every voice. Right. Impossible. If you make every single person just trying to, you've already done it. Right. Um, and it just, this. you know, coming from a soldier, you know, in our military, um, it was really profound observation on his part. Wow. And, it's um, really profound. I want to say to listeners here, uh, this may this is a songwriting podcast, and it, it may seem like we've just spent a long time not talking about songwriting, and I don't think that's the case. I think this is so important. Um, I, I am a, a strong believer that the political is personal and the other way around. Uh, so whether you're a songwriter uh, like you, Stefan, or like me, who is writing overtly, you know, movement music uh, or not. I think all of these things, the way that we think about, um, you know, the way the world works, about uh, making a better world, about justice and human liberation, all of this is an integral part to the way that we approach a song. And I think it leads to the the question that we haven't gotten to about um, about your process here, which is, you know, clearly being blacklisted did not stop you. <laughs> I, I mean, clearly you're unstoppable. In fact, your one of your recent albums is titled Unstoppable. Um <laughs> If I'm not mistaken, that's right, isn't it? Yes. Yes. And yeah. um, and uh, but so I'm I'm curious though if if and if again you know did, did anything change um in terms of what wells you were drawing from in terms of um you know your process from before that major event in in your life to after? Well, I think there's some big big things. There's um. I think overall my impetus, my reason for writing, you know, was already there and it, it didn't change. I think that um, it, in a sense, in some ways, it just forced me to double down even more on my belief that an understanding of how deeply grave and embedded, uh, on a but on a personal level, uh, and violent, um, the culture that we're living in is and how much it is desperately grasping to try to stay in control, even when it's inherently losing control. Um, the climate change is going to beat us all. Mm-hmm. The only way, you know, for example, inequality is unsustainable. Right. Just like you can't, just like you can't bomb a people that you're oppressing to try to stop them from rising up. That's obviously all it's going to do is 
maintain their their or or even and grow that that their their, uh, their opposition right so all of these things are just natural laws and i think so i think um i don't think that it really changed it really just put more because for me already i just felt like i was always trying to talk to everyone because i felt that that the the world that the situation was that bad um it's why i, I never wanted to only i ran I, I had been when i was very young first yeah punk punk artist and really drawn to and in, to and i you know been in music that was very in your face when i realized like you know but you know i can get a lot you know with with my christian midwestern family republican voting um and they totally understand and they understand the same things that i'm talking about they know the world is hitting the fan yeah and they and they they believe if they believe and do unto others then they know that inequality is unsustainable you know as christians if they believe for example yeah um so i and i so I, you know for me so i don't think it changed that as much as it made me in, in a certain way double down i do think that it had a very you know i, I will say it had a, a huge impact on my process in making my life almost unsustainable i couldn't make an income anymore i couldn't right. I, you know, being to where you couldn't get shows and even when major venues were like, we want you to do this run of dates with, you know, Joan Baez, but then you can't because people in the industry are like, no, 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 we can't have him be on this bill. Um, it meant, you know, and my daughter had just been born. It meant I, I can't pay the bills. I've been shut down. I can't even get on a tour, even when people are tr advocating for me to try to be. Um, so, so that affected my process in a major way. Sure. Um, because it meant that I couldn't even, I didn't have the time. I had to go do something else. I had to pick up a hammer and build houses or, um, you know. Yep. So in that sense, other than that, I think it. Uh, I, I'd already been, and thankfully for my relationships, even before... Um, before I'd, I'd broken through, let's say, or whatever, um, just from my relationships with Ginsburg and Pete Seeger and, and, and uh, uh, other real organizers, social change organizers, known that that part of my process was um, that that we needed a new a new way to distribute our music that would to sustain uh, and to really make an impact. It's you know, I think the the generation of like Bob Marley is maybe the last instance of of a of an artist of like a protest artist that could have been you know come through the sort of the major distribution channels when that was still seen as a valid way of hopefully changing the world. Right. After his generation, maybe at the very end, um, you know, you two and 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 Bruce Springsteen, right, in their early years, but but by that time when I was a kid, it was already obvious, at least to me, that 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 today's protest songs, if they are really going to be what we know, protest were was actually going to have going to have to take a stance and establish an alternative to all of it, right. Um, so that became a part of my, a big part of my process was like, how do we enable in the way that let's say the folk revival did after, mm -hmm. you know, um, in the fifties, you know, here's Pete Seeger is blacklisted. 
well, you know, he's going and speaking at summer camps and working at, you know, things like this after he can't get a show anymore, but then turns his eyes to, you know, cleaning up the Hudson and to working on building a movement that lifts a whole generation of voices um, instead. So it's, you know, uh, yeah. So similarly, I think that was more my, became a big part of my passion was, anyway. I love that. You know, we talk a lot about this being the wild west of the internet. Uh, obviously, artists have a lot of feelings about, you know, the fact that they can't make money off of selling an album anymore because you're giving it away, you know, especially a kind of independent artists because you're just giving it away on Spotify. I, I love, though, the way we get to observe your career, how the, the challenges, how the... Uh, ultimately the violence that the industry did to you violence in the sense that if you take a person's meal, you know, you're trying to take a person's life. And that's what happens when you go after somebody's career. Um, the violence that, that was done to you by the industry in the sense, um, that, that it, it only, you know, emboldened you and that in this moment that, you know, so often feels, um, you know, as artists, we can feel so victimized by the change in technology and the change in the economy that you have, kind of pioneer, not kind of, you've pioneered uh, and found the ways that these changes that, that, you know, having, that being able to share your music directly to fans um, is, is, is radical and has radicalized and should continue to radicalize the way that we um, as political songwriters share um, inspiration, leadership, information, communication. I love that so much. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think I do. Th I mean, I I everybody. I'm not without my failures in 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 terms of things. You know, songs that I wrote that I like. Oh, I wish I could have been even more. Uh, you know, let's say a, a knee jerk response or a direct hit on somebody in a song, or that was a fleeting impulse and not at my highest level of poetic. You know, ecstatic poetry or um, uh, or whatever that I thought would be everlasting. You know. Uh, overly topical or, um, uh. you know, um, but it's, but overall, I mean, you know, I'm a, I am a big believer. It's just like the Thomas Edison quote. And everybody always talks about oh, like, how failures or how difficulties make you stronger, but it is true. It's like, like I, I just, you know, I read the Edison, Edison's quote of that, of that basic idea, which is hilarious. Like I, I haven't, um, I haven't failed. I've I've simply found two hundred and eighty ways that don't work. <laughs> right, love it. <laughs> you know, like totally. which is like, well, that is very useful scientific, res uh, you know, and yeah. um, <laughs> you know, so uh, yeah. I, I mean, what can I say? I mean, I've I I do think that there's a freedom while there's a difficulty. Um. I, I'm never going to be one to be ungrateful for whatever life gives me um, as hard as and, and very direct as some things. I think these things happen to most people. Yeah. Different, different things happen. Right. Surely um, different things happen. Um, but I, yeah, I, I, I think that I've, I've pretty much always had my same mission. So that in the process with that hasn't changed, but my my knowledge of just how far there is to go and 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 
the practice, the spiritual practice, which I think most any songwriter, true songwriter or poet knows, it's a spiritual practice to maintain your center mm-hmm. and to remain open to what comes into you and to truly experience it and to accept it, even if it's very hurtful and to be able to separate oneself from it and to know that you are actually okay, even if your your home is bombed and your family is killed, your innocent siblings or children are killed or taken from you or whatever might be the case, you have no, you have, there's nothing you can do about that. All you can do is take that information and hopefully transform that into even greater power to stop that or to change whatever it is. Stop is not the right word Mm -hmm. because stopping it is not enough. Mm -hmm. Stopping it is only an immediate need, but that's not the solution. Right. A ceasefire, for example, right now, a ceasefire or a one state or a two state. Those are only, those actually aren't solutions. Those are short term uh, and logistical uh, decisions or developments. Right. But the only solution is, but okay, but then how do these people, how do all of us actually ultimately start to think of ourselves as one? And I, I think that's probably the biggest thing I, I'd say that about my songwriting and something just as a person that I, I, I am working on again more now than I have with my whole life is just, is to try to, despite adversity, despite the constant barrage that we have all the time of the untruth and the mistaken idea that we are different peoples, mm-hmm. we might have, you know, our people were part of one religious group and then they defa- changed or they weren't or they were from... But the truth is, and climate change again, or and, and all these things make this true, and, and arguably true, is we are one human race. Yeah. And um, so the practice of trying to make sure that if I'm writing something, I'm doing that from a perspective that presupposes and is sure of and confident and will not, that we are one and that we I will not be broken by someone coming at me with one identity, insisting on one reality and one perspective, as much as that makes me want to say, no, you're wrong, we have rights too. Even if that's the case, that's still just engaging in the immediate. Right. Um, and it, which, you know, you listen to Gabor Mate or anybody like that, it's uh, that, that all that, that, that excites our trauma history. It excites all these things. And it's not about creating a solution. It might be trying to stop to get a ceasefire now, whatever. But the vision of the world where we actually then come together is a very different perspective. And to create from that perspective and to write from that is a, is a big challenge. Mm. And hopefully that's, you know, I feel like if I've, the best things I've written have, have you know, at least attempted that and hopefully gotten there. Um, and, and I would hope if they've gotten there, even if they don't mean... Uh, even if they're, it's found or recognized later and not in my own lifetime, that would be wonderful. But as a songwriter, as a poet, that's not the point. Right. It's just 
that's the only way I can have peace with myself. Right. And whether or not the world is ready for it, whether it's the best song you write that's ever been written in the history of humankind and nobody hears it, but it's the best song ever, that's not important. What's important is if your soul has done its utmost to express what you feel is the truth that you've you've been asked to create, mm. to represent. Um, so I think that it's, yeah, that part of the pr- process for me has definitely become, I've become more mature and understanding that that's, I was already there, but, but on, but without the same level of self-awareness, I'd say in my youth. What a great answer. Well, now we'll listen to our first song of yours, which is the one that I've chosen and it's the bell. Again, this is a song that the New York Times called the anti-war anthem of a generation. I'm interested in it for several reasons. First and foremost, because it's an amazing song. Um, Second, because there are three versions of it on your album. And I'm going to play the ones where you are not the lead vocalist. One of them you are. I'll play the first verse uh, as read by Pete Seeger. That's one track on the record. Pete Seeger reads the whole song. And then, but I'm just going to play the first verse of that. Then the full song sung by Tara Nevins with harmonies from you. So you are on that track, uh, but she's singing the leads. I think it's really interesting to hear other people interpret this song that you've written, um, you know, right next to you on the same album. I think it gives us a certain window into the power of the song in its purest form, a work that lives in the public sphere for any of us to use, to pick up and use as a tool against the oppression. Um, So here it is, The Bell by my guest, Stefan Saeed, from his 2011 album of the same name. Oh, where are you going, said the man at his desk. I'm going to a new world, said the child as he stood. And he stood, and he stood, and were well that he stood. I'm going to a new world, said the child as he stood. Yes, you lie and call it truth. 
said the child, and he stood. He stood and he stood, and twere well that he stood. You lie and call the truth, said the child, and he stood. Again, that was The Bell by my guest Stefan Said. I made two mistakes. I said it was released in 2011, uh, but it actually was. When was it released? I'm sorry, Stefan. 2003. In 2003, right. Um, and uh, also I said you were singing harmonies uh, on that this alternative track. And it turns out um, that that is also not true, that it was someone in Tara Nevins' band. I didn't realize Tara Nevins is the front woman for Donna the Buffalo. Is that the case? I guess. I mean, front woman or whatever. I mean, I, they're, I, they may they may just say that, you know, they're all one. You know, Got and it. And they're all, but, but yeah. So I've just moved to central New York and she is such a hero out here. And every, no one will stop talking about Donna the Buffalo. And I clearly really need to uh, get you familiarize myself with, with their work. Um, so anyway, uh, so back to your song. This is a powerful song. Um, to me, the whole song turns on a simple but brilliant bit of tension. You've put the creator of war and the victim of war in a room together, and they're having this dialogue. And I think, I think what you've done here is unusual because they're both characters we don't hear from much. You know, we're told that the cause of war is some bad people somewhere who started it, and, uh, and then we're made to believe that the victims of war are you know, nameless, faceless people here in the U.S., here in the West in particular. Um, you know, without names and faces, their existences almost seem erased. Um, but here we have the man at his desk, it seems to me representing both corporations who drive our economy and the body politic. 
um, and uh, the politicians who you know push the the buttons of war and are driven by the corporations. And then we have the child who, in a sense, maybe represents the people of the world, but more specifically, the actual children whose lives are destroyed by war. And um, you know these characters are familiar to us, but I don't think they really ever get to talk to each other. And here they do. Um, at that time, during the Iraq War, how did you come to take this approach to this anti-war anthem? Um, first, it's very interesting that you should uh, observe that, that it's a, a conversation between the two most obvious in a sense, but right. you never, but you never really hear, we don't hear their voices. Okay. You know, the, 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 uh, commander in chief is always, you know, beyond, you know, the war is just happening. They don't have to talk about it and they're untouchable. They're uninterviewable, unassailable. They're just like, it's happening. Right. We are going to war. And then there, but there's no, like, there's no, and, and then the child here also, I mean, it, Look, everyone is a victim of war. Right. Every single person. If you're in a society that where you're going to be drafted, which this child could be, yep. um, to fight this this ruler's war, um, or you're the child that's being bombed, um, you, we don't also don't hear from them. So I, I, I never thought of it that way. I just did it because that seemed to be the most obvious. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say that you know, a lot of it came from it, it, its classic folk uh, process song, what became known as that, or just, I would say, bardic process. Yeah. You know, I'm drawing off of an, of an ancient song and poem called The False Night on the Road, mm. um, which which is is very old. It's It shows up as a child ballad. Um as the false night on the road, but even then it was known to possibly have come from Norway and, you know, I mean, the territory we now know as Norway um, from long, long, long ago. And it was, it's basically the false night is a, is probably dates to crusade times. Um, And it's, and, and the night or the, the soldier, this, uh, Reaper-like image of the of the soldier, the grim Reaper-like image of the soldier is conveyed, and he um, and he's talking to a child, hmm. the false knight on the road, and and he, and he meets a child on the road, and it, and I you know, and that's the conversation. So, um, you know, it, it was, and and I just thought this is exactly what's going on here and needs to be said and spelled out. Um, of course, this is not, you know, uh, this is, this is thousands of years of, I would say of human shared human history and genius shared human genius. Um, that it's, it's in these songs and stories and perspectives that everyday people have, and it's all packed into the history of this kind of a poem. Mm. Um, yeah. I, I, you know, interestingly, you know, it's something that, you know, obviously Pete Seeger or somebody like that knows all about and is going to, and trumpets and inhales because he's fully aware of just how powerful that is. And that's how he, why he en- enabled and was able to enable 
the folk revival in a sense. It's something that is often somehow eschewed. But, you know, the power in, for example, Dylan's lyrics, it's coming from that. It's right. I, I, I hardly attribute it to somebody like a Dylan or a Phil Oaks or whoever it might have been or Woody Guthrie. Woody was much more humble and was very well known about, you know, hey, he was using ideas and songs. They've all been around for thousands of years. Yeah. You're just reinterpreting it. Um, and the genius is in ours as songwriters in the truth. It's the, the genius is in, is in the human spirit. Um, yeah. That's, that's, I love, I love that. I love the idea of kind of, first of all, dedicating yourself to being a student of, you know, of the wonderful works uh, that have come before you and on the, on the second hand, not living in a pretense that somehow the, the work that you're doing, the songs that you're making are, uh, exist in a vacuum. It came, are, are totally unique creations, not pretending that they are and, and doubling down. It feels like there's a lot in this conversation about you doubling down, doubling down on, um, yeah, embracing, adapting, recreating, um, you know, these, these these bits of inspiration, human inspiration that uh, that came before you. Uh, it's a great, it's a great thought. Well, I mean, so it just yeah, to answer, it's like some of it was already in this original text. I mean, I was you know there it was. It was nine eleven. It just happened, and as soon as it happened, I was, you know, the the original. There was instantly oh, within thirty days we we're going to go to war in Afghanistan. Mm. We we're going to start bombing Afghanistan, and and the drum and everybody knew they were going to go back into Iraq. And it's still the same war. I mean, let's not get right. real. This is the same war that's happening right now in Israel and Palestine. It's the war that was happening before 9-11. It's, the, um, it's this control for, of land and peoples to, for oil, uh, natural resources, to maintain a global economy that is no longer sustainable. And that, and that, that is burning up the planet. Right. And that was already true. And everybody that was... Honest knew that or informed knew that already in the 90s, well before 9-11 happened. Right. Um, and, and the change could have happened before then and, and, and lots of deaths and everything could have been prevented. Um, but here we are. Uh, but it is that we are actually dealing with the same huge, I would say like what we're, even the, the Iraq war, just like what's happening now in, in Palestine and Israel, where Everybody's a victim here. We're all victims, even right. if we're not there. Right. Um, we're uh, th this. These are actually battles in a gigantic war that's been going on for a long time. Right. These are battles, and and people need to, I hope, realize that. So, what's causing? What is the battle about? Um, yeah. Yes. If you want to ask yourself what the battle is about, you have to go there because the rest of it's just confusion. Right. To, that keeps us from actually realizing who the real, what the real enemy is, what the real crisis that humankind is facing is. What, um, yeah. Absolutely. Anyway. Yeah, I, so I, that I, was a simple way. You know, it's amazing how sometimes you don't even have to talk about any of that. And you just like get straight to the, you know, a child speaking to a, um, and it's interesting how many children react to that song because as oh, interesting. profound, profound as, as it may be, I guess, um, um, conceptually or whatever, children 
little kids and parents often tell me their kids love the song because it talks about a child and the child's got this strong voice against the bigger person and the kids that's all they get they Uh don't necessarily have to under they don't they're not even thinking about global politics or any war they they just understand and and they feel that they're being represented right so four and five and seven year old kids you know love the song that's so cool that's right. I mean, we. I <laughs> think as interesting? as humanity, not just in the United States, but as humanity, I think we ongoingly under appreciate um, and undervalue the power of children. You know, because in because in practical terms, you know, like we we, we the adults have the power to oppress them so easily. You know, with our size and and yeah. being in control of the resource, it's like nothing. So people talk about you know babies being helpless and. Somebody, a smart person in my life once said, you know, who is more powerful than a baby with that mighty voice that no one right. can ignore, you know, and but we say a baby's helpless. Uh, back to your song, though. So do you feel the same way about it uh, today as you did 20 years ago when you wrote it? Well, it's an interesting recording in that it is. In some way, it really is, I guess. You never know this about things, but, you know, it's a mashup of of modern. It has a loop, you know, f- like in hip-hop for, for a drum beat that I made with, you know, a friend of mine, Dreeky, who's an amazing drummer, but it's like <laughs> this big toms thing. And then, you know, Dean Ween and, and the original recording and Pete. So it's a mashup of all kinds of musics. Right. Um, and and of ages, young to old to, um, and somehow it stuck together. It all sticks together on this fabric. It works. It's not contrived. Like if you tried to do that to try to have some effect, it would right. probably be a disaster. Totally. But it just organically uh, somehow willed itself into being. And yeah, I will say that I, I mean I. Like most many many songwriters will tell you that you know we're, we're conduits, so you don't know you you, you never want to necessarily take credit for for something that you write, except for okay, I'll take credit for sitting my ass down and being patient <laughs> enough to listen to what that thing is that was coming through the the uh, the ether, asking me to pay attention. <laughs> That's what I'll take credit for, but. <laughs> Um, but it, it is an, it is as fresh as it was. Even I, I don't listen to it that often, but when I hit it, it surprises me. Mm-hmm. It's such an unusual recording. Mm-hmm. There's just not, it doesn't sound like anything and it still doesn't sound like anything. Right. It really is a, you know, a friend of mine, Kurt St. Thomas had been, uh, in a big, uh, hip-hop label for years and uh, beloved industry uh, music, you know, savant and and, and taster. <laughs> um, yeah, I just remember him him commenting to me about, about that himself, just as an objective, just that it was like, yeah, it's, 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 it's always fresh. It just sounds as fresh. In my last yeah, episode, so I guess that that's there are a few recordings I could say about that. Yeah. Even among songs that I love unbelievably, right? There aren't that many songs that when I listen to them, also technologically or let's say stylistically, mm-hmm. 
and all of that, they still hit me where it's just like, whoa, that could have been written today, right, right now, and it, and it would sound just as futuristic and ancient, right. In my yeah. last last episode, I was talking to Chris Delmhurst about a song that um, she never gets tired of playing. It was one of the songs we talked about of hers. And there were sort of three parts to it. It seemed like in the end, one one part of it was that um, that it was timeless so that it, it kept meaning new things throughout the phases of her life and that that stayed interesting. Like it was it was so universal yeah. that, that it, she could keep finding new meanings of it. And then there was a second yeah. part to it, which was that it was also kind of enigmatic and there was always yeah. a curiosity of maybe never actually quite understanding what it did mean. So that kept it fresh also. Awesome. Um, yeah. Anyway, it seems like maybe there's elements of those things in this one um, for all of us, but also for you, for us as a listener, yeah. for you as the writer. Yeah. Really haunting to uh, listen to Pete read it. I always forget that that's on there. And also for you, like I haven't listened just to listen to Tara's version, which is so different and unique. She re she rewrote the mu the music to her own. She made this whole other, and how well just as a, um, just the poem just stands up. It doesn't. And she really did it service by just this, you know, she knows from, she knows from, from traditional musics and, right. um, and, and poetry delivery. And, and she does it in a very non self attention seeking delivery. Right. Which is, which is really freaking cool. That's why I played her version. I love your version. And I love in particular, the vocals on your version. There's so much emotion. And I think it's really interesting that, that she, that, you know, she covered it, that it's on the same record and that she, that, I feel like the song really is, it's so robust. It stands on its own, even with a totally different presentation, a totally different, uh, you know, person bringing it to the table. It just really seems to me like a testament of, of the power of the work. Um, so anyway, uh, all right. Yeah. Well, now we'll play the song that you chose. And it is, I Won't Be Silent from your 2021 album, Unstoppable. Did I get those details right this time? <laughs> 2021? Yeah, yeah. All right, here it is. Don't drop a beat, stay on your feet. Glory's coming and it tastes so sweet. Just like honeysuckle on the vine. This is our world and it's our time. Ain't no stopping what's gotta be until sky, one heaven above, just one word and the word is love, just one people and the people's us, just one world and we know we must, 
So when I'm feeling down and low, I look to the stars and I surely know we're in heaven and it's all around. I can feel it in my heartbeat. That was I Won't Be Silent by my guest, Stefan Said, performed with his band, The Clarion. Stefan, why did you choose this particular song for us to talk about? Well, it's, um, it's recent and it's very, um, but it's very, uh, it's all about everything that's happening in the world. I mean, practically half of my catalog is about all of this because it's just who I've, where I'm at. Yeah. <laughs> It's the plate, and maybe you feel that way. Somebody, the plate that I that that's in front of me, man. It's like, <laughs> um, you know, uh, so, um, but yeah, and I, I think I I know my wife loves this song, hmm. um, and and it's yeah, it's very timely. I mean, a lot of the talk right you know out there right now has been whether has been like, hey, you can't be silent. Don't be silent. Don't be silent when children are being killed. Um, or when, when climate change has just gone, you know, over the last, this, this, like right now, they've just realized that they didn't think this was going to happen, but there's way more ice melting and the highest year on record and the average temperature, um, of all, of all of the days of this year, the average temperature across the year is actually already 1.5 degrees Celsius above the norm. Wow. Uh, you know, whatever that threshold was. And scientists are, you know, I mean, I read this in the New York Times or BBC or whatever. It's widely published everywhere, USA Today, whoever, everybody. That, that Oops, we didn't think this was going to happen for another 20 years. It actually just happened. Yeah. And it's... And it's not even in the news, but the conflict, which is basically created by the control, by the, and the need for the fuel and the, and the control of the Middle East right. that is completely caused by what's caused this climate change. That's what's all that's in the news. This downstream horrible thing that's killing tons of people right. and, and making the whole world feel horrible. Um, and sleepless, um, you know, is, but, but the, but the climate change thing, that's actually the, we should all be like, and oh my God, it's not even in our headlines. Right. Um, because it has everything to do with it. So, and that's what this song is about. This song is about, Hey, we need that great big movement that all humankind has been waiting for. Yes. I mean, 
Abraham before, you know, before Moses, the, you know, Buddha, I don't care who it is, everybody knows, wherever you're from, it's intuitive, children know that they, they, some, we have it in our DNA, we know that we should be living together as equals, we know it's common sense, but it's also in our DNA, the plants and the, the plants and the animals know it, they know that the only way to work for the, any society or for the f- fabric of this planet to stay a, alive is to be one. Right. So we all know that. Um, but right now it's a matter of life and death. It's not an altruistic dream, which I think still some people maybe felt in the 60s. Right. But now it's become an issue where it's like, hey, no, it's not a dream. If we don't do this, the game's over. Right. So... Um, so this song is about that. And it's interesting, you know, I just performed it a couple weekends ago at a show that, where I'm developing my travels around the world and uh, borderless and all of that into a performance piece. It's not just a concert. It's with images and talk. And um, so that it's, it's uh, more than a concert in a sense, right? Mm-hmm. Um, an experience to bring people with me into the world. And, and, and um, uh, um and I played that, I played this, it was just me solo. I didn't have a band, my band or anything. And, and it was amazing how powerful that the song was just with me on a piano. I mean, it's really a gospel song, right? It's a, uh-huh. it is a, like, it, it can read like a, like a really powerful Southern gospel song that you're hearing in an AME church. Sure. You know, if you yeah. hear it with just because you can wail on it singing, and it was you know, and I, I didn't have the chops to be able to sing it that you know well enough when I first wrote it <laughs> to to even realize that that's what the song was. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, you know, because um, I, I, <laughs> I was it. just getting back into playing piano when I wrote it, and um, yeah, interesting. I, I love this song. Um, I won't be silent. It's, I, I, I didn't, you're absolutely right about, uh, obviously you're right, it's your song, but but I didn't notice the gospel um, sort of elements. And now, if, now that you mentioned it, I totally see that. It's, it initially felt like a pop song to me with folk song roots, which I, I enjoy. It feels fun and accessible, um, you know, in addition to being a rallying cry, um, you know, as many or most of your songs are. Um, you know, like so many of us writers... You're a genre chameleon, um, or George was a karma chameleon, but we're genre chameleons. Uh, what kind <laughs> of, I'm curious, what kind of thought goes into, you know, how you shape a song in terms of genre between, you know, gospel and folk and pop, and you have roots in hip hop. I'm curious, how much are you thinking about, how much are you thinking about it, making the music? How, how much are you thinking about making it accessible to the biggest audience so that your radical message is heard? far and wide and versus how much are you, you know, maneuvering through genres based on instinct, based on, you know, what you're feeling at the moment. It's really just what I'm hearing. And I don't think about it much more than that. Mm. I mean, yes, I think at its root, you strip everything away. This is just, you know, it's just, it, it works as a gospel song, let's say. Sure. It's, is it a gospel song? Obviously I heard it in a very contemporary pop way. I mean, it's not an, you know, you could hear at least sonically that, you know, at a 
show with Beyonce, you know what I mean? Or, right. or totally. whatever, you know what I mean? It's, but, and of course I'm not unaware that the, of, oh, let's say marketing and stuff like that, but I, I really don't give a damn about any of it anymore. I mean, I, I wanted it to be something that, yes, could, um, that was contemporary. I wasn't, it wasn't that I didn't think of it and I, and I listening to all kinds of music that artists are making today. It was, it was in my mix as I was thinking, well, how do I hear this? Um, so yeah, it was all in there, but ultimately I'm really a firm believer in the fact that what, what we need right now is authenticity and that authenticity priest requires us. And this is what borderless is all about. And I think very much, you know, well, it, it, what it requires of us is we've got to make a way. I want my music to be, I've always wanted my music to be a part of that. And I see myself as being a voice and wanting to be a voice to build that great movement. We've all waited for. And I've, and I've done, and I've always been that way because of who I am in my experience, I I felt that uh, that the war in in the in the Middle East or anywhere inequality between farmers uh, and factory workers in the United States and major billionaires is the same exact that this basic mistake that we are unequal. Is what allows this imperialism. It's what allows Timothy McVeigh to feel dejected for the mm-hmm. same reason that a child is being killed in Palestine by people that think they're the victims who are Israeli because they were killed in the Holocaust. It's actually they're all united by the same problem, right. but they're not. And we need to make that clear right. because we have got to come together and. I, and I know that the responsibility for us now is that I, I know that really I can't I can't distribute that song. I want that song that I write that hopefully helps build that music. I want the money, to, if there's profit from distributing that, I want it to be not to go in Elon Musk's pocket or Mark Zuckerberg's pocket. I want it to go into a, a building something that's going to promote other voices all over the world. Why shouldn't it? Yep. It should be on a platform that's selling the music, the art, the ideas, that's hosting the conversations, where instead of it just going to some advertising companies that got nothing to do with what we're advocating for, is actually building that movement. Right. Um, that's what we read. If we don't have that right now, we are not going to win. And we need to be that authentic, that real, that true. Um, and so the song is about that. And I do think I'm clearer on that than I've ever been in my life. Mm, mm. Um so, yeah, so I say that because in terms of, like, do I care if it's a pop? Is it important that it's a pop song? Mm-hmm. I, I don't. Um, maybe that song sounds pop in that version of it, but I would say to any young songwriter out there, the more important thing we right, need right now is the, is the poetic truth and all of its nakedness, and we need thousands of us. To, to create this movement right now. That's what we need. Everything else is just going to evaporate. Nobody's going to know who it is. Right. Who's going to care? Yeah. If, if we're able to build this movement from the ground up, 
years from now, people are going to know those songs and they're going to know that history, but they're, they may have forgotten Taylor Swift or Beyonce, unless they also become a part of that movement. But they're going to look at it through the lens of what really changed the world. Yeah. And who, that's what they're going to, that's not a slight on, on Taylor Swift or Beyonce. I'm saying that what will be remembered just as what's remembered by those of us that look back at the 60s or the 50s or the 20s or the 30s or the 1810s. Right. What we look back on historically is what actually produced the next revolution in human society. Yeah. Anyway, that's what the song is about. Thank you. <laughs> um, recently, I've been working on writing songs of love and joy after years of tending towards songs about struggle fight songs um i like this song because it's both you've taken on struggle in a very joyful way um i'm wondering is uh you know were you trying to do this or did it come just come through you this way oh it does do that um uh, trying to do it i mean it's just how i feel i do feel that way i feel that um oh that's great I feel that way, and I feel mm. that I mean it is a marching song. It, it, it's sure. a, it's a uh, in a gospel, a self empowerment and group empowerment song. Right. But I, I, I guess, but, but it's also just a personal. It's a personal song. It's why I do it. It's not a big song about the world. Actually, it's about I won't be silent. I won't be. Right. Right. Uh, this and, is a- and if that's true for you, that's great. But I'm not trying to speak to the world. Directly, I'm speaking my my truth right. here, and if that speaks to the world, I guess. Oh, sorry, I touched the microphone, and so you're going to hear some noise. Ah, um, so yeah, but so um, so I guess you know, and so from that, it, it, it I guess maybe it connects with the joy uh, because I'm speaking of it from a pers- from a personal perspective, and I think that is my personality. I think mm-hmm. that my strength. I've gotten to know myself over the years, and I always had it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it always was my strength, but you know, I'm somebody that wants to be on the street, yeah, at the front lines. I uh, and I realized that, you know, I, you know, we were on. It was before nine eleven when I'd broken, and then I'd gotten my first record deal, and there I was. I was on tour, opening up, you know, for Dave Matthews and for Bob Dylan and you know Paul Simon, and and except I didn't want to be there. Because I was like, we're about, it was before 9-11 happened, but I knew a 9-11 was about to happen, and I was writing my songs to try to stop that from happening. Right. I knew that I knew that the world's discontent with inequality and imperialism and being bombed had gotten to the point that people were boiling over. They were boiling over in Mexico, boiling over in Korea, boiling over in, right? right. It was already happening. Um, so... Um, so, uh, and I don't, where did I come? Well, we're talking about joy, about sort of how joyful so, yeah, this is as a fight song. Yeah, and so I, I, I think that it comes from that that perspective that the joy of we're just knowing. Yeah, this is. Um, I, I, I know where I know what I'm after, and I'm on that road. Right. And 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 no matter how hard it is, the fact that I'm on that road and I'm able to take steps my own clumsy steps to try to get there. But I'm on that road and I know that that's where I want to be and I belong. That That is my joy. Oh, what I was going to say was just that, you know, at that point in time, I, I knew, let's say, that's when I already knew. I, I 
It, it's when I'd broken through and I thought I wanted that success that I realized that that's not where I, I'm supposed to be. Mm-hmm. I'm not supposed, I don't need to be right now. Um, I want to be at the front lines. I don't need to be in in a uh, in an in front of fifty thousand people at at the Tweeter Center, right? You know, at this wow. gigantic um, who are who are who are there to to mostly to just have a good time and drink beer, right? While Chevrolet ads are playing, and we're bombing my family for the oil to keep those Chevrolets running. What an amazing telling, and what an amazing story! I, because you know, the American dream is like we are all. Uh, expected to uh, want this one thing, which is to to be there, you know, to have accomplished what's supposed to have been your dream and be there in front of the thousands and thousands and to be getting the bigger paycheck and to be on on your way. I really so I really enjoy and admire this about you. These it's a number of things here, but it's like it's so interesting for those of us who are fighters, who are lifelong fighters, like who for decades and decades stay the course of I'm committed to truth and to truth about the world and not just personally and individually, but collectively to being a part of the collective and to continue to fight. It's like, this is, I think probably for all of us, a pretty discouraging endeavor. It's like, it's uphill the whole way. It's a lot of work. There's a lot of defeat. There's a lot of discouragement and to maintain coming from a perspective of, I don't know, of love, of hopefulness, um, of, you know, of, of global community in the way that you have, um, and to have it continued to be reflected in the music, in your, you know, in your life's work, is just really cool. It's like lovely. And, and also it's like you're saying about this song, you're not writing it for other people. You're not saying, you know, I want you all to do this. I think you all should be this. You're saying this is who I am, but you're also offering it. As a gift, I mean, all of our songs as artists are gifts that we offer. Ideally, they're good gifts. Sometimes they're not. Um, but you're you're offering it as a gift to say to other people, you know, this could be yours too. You could you could feel this kind of hope. You could feel this kind of joy for the possibility of the world we all deserve. I love that. Thank you. I mean, I realized when I'm listening to you talking, I was thinking about the lyrics, and it's like you know the. The lyrics in this song are, are very much because they're so personal, they they might entirely be, they could be entire the whole song could be interpreted as about one's personal struggle overcoming some difficulty. It could be addiction, it could be mm-hmm. it could be some horrible injustice done to you, it could be the state anything. Um just because it's it's written from the perspective of how do I, you know, uh, uh, uh that I one, I won't be stopped. I won't be silent. I'm going to lift up and nothing is going to discourage me. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, ain't, you know, it's like the old gospel song. It's like, um, uh, um, what was I thinking? Is, is it ain't, ain't no turning back or, um, um, in any, in any case, but you know, the last verses is, is all about reflecting on, uh, on discouragement it's it's about so when i'm feeling down and low i when i have nothing left when i honestly start to doubt um i look to the sky to the stars and and i know i know because i am below the stars and you know, this is like back to whether or not your someone's reference is roomy or 
or sacred text, or if it's, you know, if you listen to old Alan Lomax recordings of, of Phil Tanner, here we are before, you know, the, the Welsh, the great Welsh storyteller and singer, his wassail song. It's like, we know by the stars that we are not too far. And we know by the moon that we are not too soon. You know, I look to the stars and I know that we are in heaven already. This is heaven. And then I know that I know I'm on the road to glory. And, you know, so even if I'm depleted, I know that my surroundings, the truth, they surround me with, with the very fact that this is heaven. Um, They give it back to me so that I, so that I, I won't be silent. Even if I, even if it means, you know, you're going to die in poverty and never listen to ever in your life. That's not important because all of this is going to disappear. Well, to finish out the show, we'll each share, uh, now that I've made this transition, it feels like uh, too abrupt from, from the things that uh, we've been talking <laughs> about that are so meaningful. <laughs> to, <laughs> well, to, I hope to, that this... Hope that this is. All, I hope that this, at least, you know, just in a word, this is all about songwriter process. Because for anybody, even if you're not an engaged one, it's about, you know, it's all for all of us. It's about how do we stay true to whatever, whatever the voices are that come to us, come through us, that are, are that are, are where the songs come from. For me, this is mine. Uh, it might yours might be somebody else something else but but still then the process of staying true to that and listen to it um there's a commonality in that anyway so you're gonna say no just thank you Stefan. this this is that that's profound and so deeply meaningful i think for each of us as songwriters um i love that thank you well i was gonna say so to finish to finish out the show we're going to each share one cool thing something that's piqued your interest or even something that you've been mildly obsessed with that you think our listeners might enjoy uh, should i go first or would you like to yeah please no go first because i don't I'm, i don't know if i have my thing yet so oh, that's fine it might come to me okay good well mine is a new book uh it's called ringmaster vince mcmahon in the unmaking of america and it's about uh you, you might be familiar with vince mcmahon the the sort of superstar owner of uh, what was the WWF and became WWF, and I forget what it's called I, now. Yeah, yeah. It's got a third name. I, I did not grow up interested in uh, professional wrestling, um, but uh, you'll remember the character of the Iron Sheik, and um, the Iron Sheik died last year. Um, he was a um, the bodyguard a bodyguard of the Shah, an Iranian man who was a, a wrestler, like an, an actual, um, right. you know, competitive Olympic wrestler in Iran. Became the bodyguard of the Shah, and then um, you know, around the time of the revolution, the entourage of the Shah sometimes got killed off um, unexpectedly, and so he fled for his life. Um, the most famous Iranian wrestler had also been a bodyguard of the Shah, and he got killed. So so this guy uh, left Iran for the U.S. and found his way into WWF, where he played a heel role. He was, you know, there were, there were uh, in 
in, re- in professional wrestling, there are faces and there are heels. These are the two categories. And a face is the hero, usually a, a sort of American, all-American type. And the heel is the villain, usually a foreigner. And growing up, um, I hated seeing the Iron Sheik. I hated wrestling in general, but I hated seeing the Iron Sheik. I felt like he was, I already felt embarrassed and, uh, you know, as an immigrant, humiliated. And I felt like he was humiliating us. And then, um, I don't know, five, six years ago, I discovered his Twitter account as in his, I don't know, in his 70s. And he had this Twitter account and I loved his Twitter account. He, I just thought he was so incredible, hilarious. He was sort of still playing his old role. Um, they were sort of, um, anyway, I've started talking about this on stage even <laughs> when I'm performing songs <laughs> because, awesome. you know, it's like so many of my songs deal really directly with, you know, my Iranian heritage and, and with radical things. And I just really enjoyed how later in life I came to appreciate something about him. Um, you know, he'd have these tweets, uh, lots, they're all, they're formulaic. He's got a thousand tweets that start like, you know, fuck the, this fuck the Mondays. I always hear him in my father's voice, uh, fuck the Mondays uh, or, you know, whatever it is that he doesn't like, or, uh, or if he loves something, he'd be like, you know, such and such is the real, the real Baba. He'd say these things every time. It doesn't matter. I know he's done it a thousand <laughs> times. Every time I think it's funny, uh, or, you know, Justin Timberlake, I love you, Baba. He'd say stuff like this. I, I just couldn't get enough. And, uh, you know, on, uh, um, uh, Jewish holidays, he'd come out and, you know, sort of wish Jews. Uh, I'm actually not sure if he himself was Jewish or not, but, um, you know, wish Jews happy holidays, which, you know, from as an Iranian from a country that is uh, lambasted as, you know, such an outrageously anti-Semitic country. Um, of course, every country is outrageously anti-Semitic is, is the actual truth. Um, but uh, anyway, I just enjoyed him sort of representing us in the way he did, even though he was bombastic and ridiculous and I felt humiliated by him as a boy. So anyway, I'm reading this book, which is an, a really lovely ringmaster, uh, Vince, Vince McMahon in the Unmaking of America, kind of a really lovely um, appraisal of, you know, wrestling as probably the oldest sport in, in humanity and, um, and the, all of the problems with it um, and all of the value that it has uh, enjoying that conversation. So I went on for longer than I meant to. <laughs> no, no, that's awesome. I love, love when you know when you dive into something that you um, is a is a diversion that that is you know can be liberating and um, just give you enjoyment that takes you away. I mean, yeah. for me, I I do have something that's kind of like that. I mean, I guess right now that I wasn't thinking I would say, but I you know my whole life, my mother's Austrian and my cousins and everywhere are phenomenal skiers. Mm. And I never got to ski as a kid. Uh-huh. Uh, we didn't have the money for it. We didn't close enough to the slopes or whatever was the thing. Right. Or it was just too much going on. Um, but now we have this place in the Catskills and we're nine minutes and I can see Bel Air Ski Resort right out of my window. It's right there. Whoa. It's that mountain. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, and my son, you know, I was like, well, everybody here skis, so it's like just part of growing up here. So, um, of course, so last year I said, okay, I'm going to start skiing. And, um, I mean, I'm an athlete and I've, and I always wanted to ski as a kid, but I just never got to. And, and, um, and so I've, you know, here I am, I'm with my son and I'm into it and I'm going and, you know, 
And it's just so liberating because, you know, I'll even see other friends of mine who like, usually if I see them, they're, they're like, you know, we're all busy. We have so much going on. You can see stress in somebody's face. You see somebody on the slopes. They're just like, cause it's time out of mind. Right. Yeah. When you're right. up on the slopes, it's like, you have to be so focused on just the, as it's fun, it's exhilarating, it's all of this, but you also have to be focused because it's not a joke. Right. And so all, all of it, and, and, but, you know, and it's also got the aspect of, um, like David Harvey, the, 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 the social theorist or whatever you would call him, anthropologist, writer, um, has a great piece that's about going into airports and how, you know, airports are also a time out of mind, a, time, a space out of mind. Um, as soon as you get there, you know, you're stressed out, you've got all this work, but you could have a mountain of stuff you haven't, deadlines you haven't met. As soon as you get to the airport for your trip, as soon as you're through security, this like, because you know you cannot do anything about it. Right. It may have changed a little bit with cell phones because all of us are like, oh, now I, I'm in the, I'm, I'm waiting to board. I can get those 10 emails out. But, right. but, you know, especially before, but still there's that sense that like, hey, now once I'm in the airport, I'm freaking letting go, totally. you know, hell could be. And it's, so skiing is awesome like that. And that, you know, it's just time out of mind. It's so you're on the, you know, and you're in nature. Right. I mean, yeah, you could say, okay, if it's downhill skiing and, the, oh, there's if they're making snow and electricity yeah. and it's blah, blah, blah. But, the, you know, the same is true of, of just cross-country skiing and right out your back door here in the mountains. Sure. You're, you're in snow. I see the kids, the children late will just, they'll lay, they lay down. Like, you know, and adults do too. Like they'll regularly lay down on the earth, on the snow and stare at the sky. It's just awesome. Wonderful. It's a great, it's a great uh, diversion, a great way to, yeah. Well, Stefan, say. Wonderful, wonderful conversation. It was great having just you great, on the show. Great, great to be asked to probe some, some of the things that you, um, yeah, that you do. Thank you. You can find everything Stefan Said at stefansaid.com. That's S-T-E-P-H-A-N-S-A-I-D.com. And his organization is Borderless at thisisborderless.com. Those links will be in the show notes. I'm Muhammad Seven. You can find me at muhammad7.com. That's M-U-H-A-M-M-A-D and S-E-V-E-N. Like the number, you can find my music, tour dates, as well as how to get in touch if you're interested in songwriting coaches, coach, sorry, songwriting coaching or lessons, uh, which I offer. Um, if you'd like to support the show, again, I have a Patreon. You can become a patron via the link on my website or by searching Muhammad 7 on patreon.com. Uh, if you'd like your ad to be featured at the top of the podcast, just email it in. You can find my contact info uh, in the link tree of all the We Flew Off the Page social media pages. We're always eager for sponsors. I'll leave you today with a quote from Leonard Cohen who said, There's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. All right, I'll see you next time back here on We Flew Off the Page.